Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the U.S. stock market finally had a rare down day today. The Dow Jones was down almost 180 points. We did have a little bit of a rally off the lows. Uh, NASDAQ closed down just 39 points. Uh, But still, it's rare to see the U.S. stock market going down. The supposed catalyst today for the sell-off was the increase in long-term interest rates. Now, long-term interest rates have been rising steadily all year. So the market hasn't cared about rising interest rates at all this year. So I don't know why today is any different. The yield on the 10-year moved above 2.7%. This is not quite a four-year high in yields. The high was 2.725%. I think we closed right at 2.7, maybe 2.699. And that's the 10-year. The yield on the 30-year is at 2.943, you know, which to me makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, why would anybody buy a 30-year treasury for 2.943%. I mean, you could just buy a 10-year for 2.7. I mean, 20 extra years of interest rate and inflation risk. Why would somebody assume that for an extra 20 basis point in yield? I mean, to me, it doesn't make sense that anybody would buy any treasury, regardless of the duration. But if you're going to buy a long-term treasury, why on earth would you go for 30 years? Just buy a 10-year. The yield is almost the same. But if we get a big increase in interest rates, the collapse in the value of the 30-year is going to be much bigger than the 10-year. In fact, that seems to me like a pretty good trade for a spread trader, which would be buying the 10-year and shorting the 30-year because that spread has got to widen, right? That extra 20 years of inflation risk and interest rate risk is going to come back to bite anybody who's buying a a 30-year treasury. So it doesn't even make any sense to me why that yield curve hasn't already blown out. But it's going to happen. I mean, it's only a matter of time. And to me, I don't think the markets are worried about higher interest rates. I mean, the Dow's down 170 points. That's nothing. If anyone was actually worried about higher interest rates, we would have had a much bigger drop than the one we had today. So who knows why the market was down? That's the excuse But it can't be rates because this has been happening consistently and no one has cared. And if anybody cared, we would have a much bigger uh, drop in the stock market. Meanwhile, the dollar rallied today. In part, that's being blamed on the increase in rates because I'm reading a lot of stories about why this increase in yield is, you know, making U.S. dollars more attractive. No, it's not. Not at all. I mean, could you imagine, let's say, a 10-year Treasury was yielding 2.5%. And at that rate, you're in Europe, you're in Asia, and you have no interest in U.S. Treasuries at 2.5%. Look, the dollar's falling, inflation's picking up, 
why do I want to buy a treasury for two and a half percent? Look, markets all around the world are going up. I mean, I've got better things to do with my money. I'm not going to tie it up by, with, by a loan to the U.S. government for the next 10 years for two and a half percent. So now all of a sudden the yield's at 2.7. Do you think the same investor is going to say, oh, wait a minute, oh, 2.7. Oh, yeah, there you have Sign me up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't want to buy those U.S. treasuries at two and a half. But 2.7, oh, sure, yeah, I'll take them. Yeah, let me, let me sell my stocks or I don't want to be in commodities. or I No, I really want to be in the treasuries. Of course not. This tiny increase in yield doesn't make a difference. And again, remember, this whole idea that rising rates are good for the dollar is not true. It would be rising real interest rates that might be good for the dollar. And then you're talking about short-term rates, not really long-term rates. If long-term rates are rising, it's more likely they're rising because the dollar is weak, right? If the dollar is weak, people don't want to own long-term treasuries. If inflation expectations are rising, that diminishes the appeal of treasuries. That's not good for the dollar because if people are worried about more inflation, what they're worried about is the dollar losing purchasing power. Also, you know, yields could be rising because of increased risk premiums associated with treasuries. People are worried that the U.S. government has too much debt and they can't pay it off without printing money. Or maybe some people are worried that they might actually default, right? There are a lot of reasons that people can get worried about U.S. treasuries and not want to own them. And so they're selling them. But the same reasons that you would be worried about treasuries are to be worried about the dollar because all treasuries are are dollars with a coupon, right? They're long-term promises to pay dollars, and but you don't even get your dollars right away. I mean, in theory, the government's not even going to give you your dollars until the bond matures. So if you have a 30-year treasury bond, you're not getting your dollars for 30 years. I mean, they might not be worth anything in 30 years. So who would want that? So to simply look at the U.S. bond market going down and assume that this is good for the dollar is a bad assumption to make. But everybody is still making that. That's why you had gold down today. Gold was down, I think, about 9 bucks at the close. It was down 12 or 13 on the lows. So we did finish a little bit off the lows. Gold stocks pretty much close to the lows of the day. Everybody is so scared. Oh, rising interest rates. So this is bad for gold. No, it's not. Because for the same reason that bonds are falling, the same reason that bonds are less appealing, those are the same reasons that the dollar is less appealing. And those are the same reasons that gold is more appealing. If you're worried about a weak dollar, you buy gold. If you're worried about inflation, you buy gold. You sell bonds and you buy gold. People still don't understand this relationship. But I don't think this is going to last long. I mean, this is a buying opportunity uh, in gold going down. It's a selling opportunity in the dollar rallying because the reality is higher rates are not helping the dollar. The Fed has been hiking rates for the last, what, two years, and the dollar keeps falling. The dollar is more than a three-year low. So these higher rates haven't helped the dollar. And the reality is, at some point, the Fed is going to stop hiking rates. And at some point, they're going to start cutting rates. And none of that is even factored into the dollar yet. I mean, wait till the currency traders start discounting that, especially when the rate cuts come in the face of rising inflation. In fact, one of the reasons that the dollar was stronger today is you had some comments coming out of ECB officials about tapering of their QE program and the fact that it's going to be a gradual process. So those were seen as dovish comments. But remember, their forecast of a you know slow, gradual taper of their QE program is all predicated on their view of inflation being low, right? CPI in the Eurozone has to stay 
below 1.9%. It can't hit two because that's too high. So apparently the tolerance is 1.9. And where are they now? 1.6? I forget exactly where they are. It's not like they're so far away. Like there's a lot of daylight between where they are and 2%. And anybody who just objectively looks at what's going on with commodity prices, what's going on overall in the global economy, would have to believe that inflation is likely to come back. I mean, after being missing in action for all these years, at least the way the central bankers like to measure it with their uh, you know, price indexes, it's about to rear its ugly head in a big way. And of course, if inflation comes back to the eurozone, they cannot slowly take their foot off the gas pedal. I mean, the ECB is going to have to slam on the brakes. And even if they don't want to, the Bundesbank is going to make sure that that happens. So we'll see how this progresses uh, over the course of the next several trading days. We have a lot of news, potentially market-making news, coming out this week that could affect the dollar, that could affect bonds. First of all, speaking about uh, central bankers, tomorrow begins the two-day meeting of the FOMC, the last one that is chaired uh, by Janet Yellen. So this is her final hurrah. I don't think anybody expects... uh, her last meeting to include a rate hike, uh, but we'll see what happens. But they are expecting three, if not four, rate hikes during the course of this year. So maybe they're expecting Powell to deliver the next one. But we'll get some final remarks, I guess, from Janet Yellen on Wednesday. Uh, and I will uh, you know, be able to comment on that on a podcast that I do Wednesday. Also, I will comment on the president's first State of the Union address which is going to be delivered tomorrow night, and which I'm sure is going to be complete BS, right? The president is going to talk about how great things are. This is probably likely to be the most positive, optimistic State of the Union address anybody's ever delivered, right? Donald Trump is going to act as if whatever problems he inherited from Obama are solved, right? Maybe we have a little bit more work to do, like we got to build that wall or infrastructure, But this is going to be about how America is back, how America is open for business, how the economy is booming, how the stock market is booming, how unemployment's at a record low. It's just going to be one big snow job. And we'll see how the markets respond uh, to all this unfettered optimism on the part of, of the president. And also, I'll be curious to see how much new spending programs the president is going to unveil And people trying to get their arms around exactly how much money we're going to have to borrow and who's going to lend it to us and at what rate in order to pay for it. Now, also on Friday, we get the jobs report. We're going to get, you know, the final one or on Friday, we get the jobs report. It's the January report. So it's the first report for a new year. And I guess it'll be the first January report where Donald Trump was president for the entire month of January. Sure, again, the markets are looking for uh, good news on the job front. Again, as far as I'm concerned, it's likely to be more of the same, uh, but we'll see. Eventually, we're going to start to see some jobs reports that substantially uh, disappoint the markets, because at some point, the employment picture is going to turn south. We're going to start to see a pickup in, in, in the unemployment rate, And we're going to start to see a slowdown in the number of jobs that are being created. Not that we've been creating so many, but I think we're going to see a slowdown. And eventually we're going to start to hemorrhage jobs, especially if we keep getting economic data like the data we got today on consumer spending. We got spending uh, and income numbers out today. 
pretty much in line with expectations, but the savings rate hit a new uh, 10-year low. The rate fell down to 2.4%. Now, that's the lowest it's been since September of 2005, right? Now, if the economy really was as good as Donald Trump and everybody else was pretending, people would have more savings, not less savings, right? When things are going well, you tend to increase your savings. You build up your nest egg, right? I mean, if you were to run into a friend of yours and the friend was going to ask you, hey, how are things going? How are you doing financially? You know, if things were going well, would you say, yeah, things are great. I mean, my bank account is full. I've been, I've been, I've saved up a lot of money. Things have been so good, right? That my savings are higher. It reflects the fact that I'm earning more money. I'm doing better. I've been able to save more money, save more for retirement, save more for, for a rainy day, right? All this stuff would be happening, right? You wouldn't tell your friend, hey, things are great. My savings are the lowest they've been in 10 years. I mean, I've depleted all my savings, right? That's not what you would say. Or, you know, we have record credit card debt now, right? That's where the spending is coming from. Would you tell your friend, yeah, things are great. I've maxed out all my credit cards. No, you know, if if things were great, you'd be able to tell your friend, hey, things are so good. I paid off all my credit cards. I no longer have any debt, right? Eliminating your debt is a sign that things are doing well. Going deeper into debt is a sign that things are not going well that you're relying on debt in order to spend. That's what's going on. And what are people spending on? Imports, right? We're buying imported products. The trade deficit is soaring because Americans are borrowing more money and depleting their shallow savings pool to buy more imported goods that they'd be better off not buying. So again, this is more bad economic news. And eventually these tapped out consumers, especially when prices really rise and interest rates really rise, that's it. They're done. In fact, of course, you know, the Atlanta Fed, you know, always the optimist, right? Hope springs eternal. They came out today and issued their first uh, forecast for Q1 GDP. And they are at 4.2%. Now, last quarter, we got 2.6% for fourth quarter GDP. But based on the way the numbers have been coming out, I would say that there's better than a 50-50 chance that that's going to end up being downgraded, maybe somewhere below 2.5% for the fourth quarter. When Atlanta Fed first issued their Q4 forecast, I think they were at 4.5%, something crazy like that. So they're at 4.5 and maybe they're going to end up at 2.5. So way off the mark, yet here they are again, 4.2% for the first quarter of this year. So here we're going to go all over again, the brand new, uh, or they're going to restart uh, the GDP limbo. And the GDP limbo is where the Atlanta Fed constantly have to lower the bar. Every time more and more bad economic data comes out, they have to lower the bar. And of course, you know, a lot of the optimism that the economy is turning around is based purely on the stock market, right? The stock market going up That's what Trump can point to because he can't point to GDP because GDP hasn't gone up. So all this betting on an improvement of GDP is betting on the come, right? You have no real evidence of an improvement in GDP. It's just a bet that the stock market is right, that the stock market is rallying because it's forecasting a big increase in the economy or the belief that these tax cuts are just going to usher in all this economic growth. But there's no actual proof that it's going to happen. In fact, the stock market is probably as wrong as it is right about forecasting 
you know, good times in the future. I mean, the stock market was booming, uh, you know, right before the 08 financial crisis or in 2005, 2006. The market was going up. Everybody thought stuff was going to be great. And we were right around the corner from a financial crisis. So the stock market could just as easily send out a bad information as good information, especially when investors are behaving as irrationally as they're behaving now. In fact, if the stock market is going up simply because everybody believes the economy is going to improve, but now you have people pointing to the improvement in the stock market, and they're saying, you see, the stock market's going up, the stock market's booming, and that means we're going to have a booming economy. You can't really do that because the logic doesn't flow. Because if the stock market is going up because investors think the economy is going to be strong, they could be wrong. You can't, you know, so you can't use the increase in the stock market as proof the economy is going to go up if the justification for the rise in the stock market is also the belief that the economy is going to improve. But I think there is overwhelming evidence that would suggest the opposite. I mean, one being the fact that it's been so long since the last downturn and just the laws of physics apply here, the law, laws of the economic cycles that we've been in. It would be unprecedented for this you know, expansion to continue indefinitely, you know, throughout the entirety of the Trump presidency. But with interest rates rising, commodity prices rising, to me, these are much bigger negatives that everybody is ignoring than the positives of the tax cuts. And remember, not everybody's getting a tax cut. There are some people that are getting tax hikes. So you got to, you know, you got to factor that in. You've got some tax hikes and you got some tax cuts. But everybody who has debt is going to be paying higher uh, interest to carry that debt. And everybody who consumes is going to be paying higher prices for the things that they buy. So that is going to be a drag uh, that is going to be felt by by pretty much everybody. And people are completely discounting the uh, the implications of those rises. Now, again, another market that is not drawing any kind of bid as a result of some of this turmoil are the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin again. And I think I mentioned on my podcast last week that we were hanging out around 10,000. I meant we were in a range. 10,000 had been about the lows. I mean, we've been into the 9,000s, and sometimes we rally up to around 12,000, but it seems like the midpoint is around 11,000. You know, we get into the tens or maybe a little lower, some buying comes in, we get up above 12,000, and there's a bunch of selling. I mean, as I'm looking at it now, we're around 11,200, off about 500 on the day. So we are just trending sideways and hey, this could just as easily break down as up, right? Nobody really knows whether we're getting ready for another move up or whether or not we've already peaked out because, you know, we're already, you know, we're hanging out around at a 50% decline from the peak. Usually when you have a bull market, you know, you don't retrace that much of the previous gain. So there's a good indication that when you're down 50% that you're in a bear market. And if you're in a bear market, why would you stop at a 50% decline? I mean, it doesn't seem that we would. If the bear market, if this really is a bear market, I would say it's at least an 80 or 90% decline, which is something that we're going to see. And again, as I said, you take 80 to 90% off the top. I think you destroy the, the market going forward. I don't think you're going to have a whole new group uh, of fools lining up uh, to buy into it again as people start saying, oh, don't worry, now we're going to go to 50,000, we're going to go to 100,000. It was one thing to say that when we were 20,000 and going up every day, it's going to be a whole different deal to try to persuade people if Bitcoin is back at 2,000, that it's going to 50,000 or even or even 20,000. So this is, again, a very important level for, for the Bitcoin market. So it's not just 
you know, the stock market that's in a bubble that has a lot of air, but it's Bitcoin that's in a bubble. And again, I think a lot of this money, as it comes out of stocks, as it comes out of cryptocurrencies, as it comes out of bonds, is going to end up in, the, in gold, especially when the people who have been shunning gold understand that a, a weak dollar or falling bond prices, rising interest rates that are a reflection of rising inflation and a loss of confidence in the fiscal uh, capabilities or responsibility of the U.S. government, where you have budget deficits and trade deficits that are blowing up, this is the best thing that can possibly happen for gold. Yet so few people in the investment community actually understand that. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit, too, about a topic that I was discussing with a, uh, a prospect today. And again, I mentioned last week, we've been getting a lot of calls now. We're opening up a lot of new accounts. So um, I'm glad to see uh, that the dollar being in the news now is starting to get people think, right? That the, that the magnitude of the decline that we've had at least has gotten people thinking. Again, again, it's not like we're getting overwhelmed where I would want to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe it's a contrarian indicator. This is just the beginning. I think, I think we're going to continue to build as the dollar loses value. And ultimately, as it spills over, as the U.S. stock market starts to go down, as gold really starts to break out, then I expect this trend to pick up rather dramatically to the point where I might have to actually start adding uh, brokers at some point. That's something I haven't done in a long time. And maybe we'll start hiring if we really start to see a pickup in demand for people who actually get it. And hopefully they'll be able to you know, open up an account quickly enough before they end up getting, you know, getting trampled or getting you know, destroyed by this tidal wave uh, that, is, that is coming. But I had this conversation with a prospect and he's going to open up an account. But one of the things he was asking me about is, you know, hey, can I just go and get some index funds that you know, will buy foreign stocks and just you know, where the, the, uh, the fees are lower, where the management fees are lower? And I said, you could do that. But you're not going to replicate the strategy or, I believe, the long-term performance. And this is something that I think has been going on, and it hasn't just affected me. It affects everybody who manages money for a living and who uses their brain. You see, over the last several years, right, using your brain has been a liability. Because if you actually thought about stuff, then there are a lot of stocks that you didn't buy. But the people who didn't think anything about that just kept buying anyway, and the prices kept going up. Because so many people were piling into these index funds where you can, you can charge a small amount of money because you don't do any thinking. You don't analyze anything. You don't make a determination that this stock is too expensive or this stock is a great value. You just buy everything. And if you're just going to buy everything and do no research and do no analysis, then yeah, you could charge rock bottom prices. No problem. And as long as everybody is piling money into those same mindless uh, index type funds that just buy everything regardless of price, well then, yeah, everything is great. The problem is when it stops, when the bubble bursts and all the people who have been pouring money into index funds look to take it out, these stocks implode. I mean, there's no natural buyers anymore because they're so overvalued. And that's when you find out just how expensive your cheap index fund was because all your profits go away and now you have massive losses. It's the guys who are thinking, who have underperformed. And I'm not the only person uh, who, you know, is, is in this uh, predicament. I mean, there are plenty of other people. In fact, I read all these stories about some hedge fund managers that long-term value guys over the last couple of years, they've folded up their shop. They've closed down because they can't compete uh, with the markets because they're thinking. 
They, you know, they don't want to knowingly buy into a bubble because they don't know when it's going to pop. But everybody is being judged by short-term performance. So if you're not willing to, you know, get with the program and sacrifice everything you know just to buy what every other idiot is buying, it's hard to stay in business. But the actively managed accounts, people who have been charging more but actually providing services, even the people in the U.S. stock market. Look, the people who are working with smart, active managers who are really doing their jobs and who have underperformed for the last few years because they've refused to just follow the crowd and just do what everybody else is doing, they're going to do better for their clients. Maybe their clients will end up losing a lot less money than the clients who just bought the index funds. Yes, they're going to end up paying more fees, but in the long run, they're going to get better performance and the fees are going to be worth it. The same thing with my strategy. Look, I don't just randomly buy all the foreign stocks. I mean, a lot of the foreign stocks are overpriced too. There's a global bubble going on out there. So you have to avoid the bubble stocks wherever they are. They're not just in America. There are overpriced stocks everywhere. So you got to know what type of stocks to buy, what countries to buy them in, and what, what companies and what sectors are likely to do well during the environment that I envision. You know, most of these index funds that you'll buy internationally the biggest allocation that you're going to get is financials. It's the foreign banks. It's the European banks. It's the Asian banks. In the economic environment that I'm envisioning, that's the last place you'd want to be is in these big banks. right? So, if, But if you're indexing, that's where you're going to get because that's what dominates the indexes. So if you want to try to avoid the landmines and find the gold mines, in some cases they are literally gold mines. In other cases, they're, they're not. But you've got to hire somebody who's actively managing. So that is... The, the main reason that you do not want to index or don't try to cut corners and find the cheapest asset manager because you're not going to get the long-term performance. In the short run, sure, but who cares about the short run? What good are paper profits that aren't there when you need the money, right? What's important is your long-term results, right? You can, you know, you, you can find a doctor that will perform an operation on the cheap, Right. But does that mean that he's definitely going to give you the best long term results? No, I would say, look, you know, I'm going to pay a little bit more money. Let me get the guy that knows what he's doing. The guy that went to a top notch uh, medical school. He's got a lot of you know, he's got a lot of experience, even if it costs me a little bit more, because, you know, I'm not concerned about the cost of the surgery. It's the results. It's the long term uh, impact that the surgery has on my standard of living or my, my quality of living, rather, you know, how I feel, how I look, how I live. And so that's what I think. I think that when people are looking for someone to manage a portfolio, it's not about who could do it the cheapest. It's who could do it the best. And doing it the best means that sometimes you've got to underperform. If the world has gone crazy, if everybody is overpaying for a bunch of crap, that doesn't mean you do it too. Right? Now, if you don't do it and everybody keeps doing it for a while, you look foolish until everybody else gets foolish. Look, right? So first they laugh at you, but then you get the last laugh when you get to laugh at them. And I'm pretty sure uh, that I'm going to be laughing and my clients will be laughing at a lot of people who don't get it now, who want to say, oh, you've missed out on all these gains in the U.S. stock market. Look, I don't care what I've missed out on. What I care about is what I'm going to cash in on. And what other people should be concerned about is not what they experienced in the past, the money they think they've made on paper, but the massive losses that they're going to suffer in reality. And if they're not nominal, right, if, if the losses aren't, you know, numbers of dollars, right, if the stock market doesn't crash, it's only going to be because the dollar crashed more. And so it's not going to be a consolation to people who have a portfolio full of dollars if in the long run you can't buy very much with the dollars you have, 
What you need to have is a portfolio that will deliver real returns in terms of purchasing power, long-term purchasing power to protect you, not from just a decline in the stock market, but from a decline in the dollar and the impact that such a decline will have on the vast majority of Americans' standard of living and ability uh, to retire or stay retired if they currently are. So this, again, is something that you're not going to have another chance to get this right. Either you get it right now or that's it. Because once this dollar bubble pops, once the air comes out of this bubble, there's no way anybody is going to put it back in. I've been reading that the Northeast states, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, are on the verge of filing some kind of a lawsuit to challenge the constitutionality of this $10,000 cap on state and local tax deductions. They're saying that this is unconstitutional. It's a usurpation of states' rights. It's double taxation. Uh, it disproportionately falls on you know Democratic states. And they have a number of arguments, none of which I believe has any chance of actually holding water with the Supreme Court. I mean, I think that their, that their claim uh, that this is unconstitutional really to me, it doesn't it, it doesn't work. I mean, I, I get the idea, the concept of double taxation and and states rights. But I think based on the way the courts are currently, uh, you know, interpreting uh, the, the or ignoring the Constitution and how they've looked at the income tax in the 16th Amendment, they just say, well, the Congress has the right to tax your income. And the fact that they give you any deductions at all. Well, that's that's you're a blessing. They can just tax all your income and not give you any deductions. Right. The way the government looks at it. They could take all of your income. The fact they let they let you keep anything right there, according to the, the current interpretation, if they had 100 percent tax and they gave you no deductions, then that would be constitutional, which shows you how ridiculous uh, the income tax is that in theory now the government could take all your money and it would be completely constitutional when the whole idea behind the Constitution was to limit the power of the government. Well, if the government could take all of your money, well, then it's all powerful. And this whole idea that the government could just tax income unlimitedly destroys the very meaning of the Constitution. See, what I wish these states would do, instead of challenging the constitutionality of this deduction phase out or cap, which isn't going to work, why not just challenge the constitutionality of the entire income tax? Because there they have a much better argument because the income tax is being collected and enforced right now in violation of the Constitution and in violation of the 16th Amendment because the income tax is supposed to be collected as an excise tax, and it's not. It's being collected as a direct tax. You know, you've got these states, New York and Connecticut, are complaining that they are net payers of taxes, that they send a lot more money to the federal government uh, than they get back. And that's because of the income tax and the fact that it is being levied unconstitutionally as a direct tax. See, the whole purpose of the Constitution, or one of the main purposes, was to prevent uh, smaller states from taxing wealthier states. So that's why they made direct taxes subject to the rule of apportionment. And what that meant was that, let's say the, the federal government wanted to have an income tax that was constitutionally levied as a direct tax. Well, first, what they would have to do before they levied the tax every year, they would have to decide how much money they want to collect in the income tax. They need to know that up front. Then what they would have to do is add up all the population in all the states to determine how much each state owed for its share of the income tax. And so what that would mean is, let's say you have a state where 
the average income is twice per capita what it is in a poor state. Let's say New York, you know, has I don't, I'm just making these number up, but just for the sake of argument, let's say the per per capita income in New York is twice the per capita income in Mississippi. Well, if you levied a direct income tax that was apportioned, the tax rates in Mississippi would have to be twice as high as the tax rates in New York in order for Mississippi to raise its pro rata share of the direct tax. And that would stop the poorer states from even wanting to have an income tax or wanting to authorize it to pay for some government program if they knew the rates would be so much higher in their state because the incomes were so much lower. But because we're no longer treating the income tax as a direct tax, since we're allowing the government to unconstitutionally and illegally collect an unimportioned direct tax, that is why you have states like New York and California that pay such high taxes relative to other states. So if these states want to end that, they've got to go to the constitutionality. Now, I know everybody likes to say, well, you know, no, that was all settled uh, by the 16th Amendment. No, it wasn't. The 16th Amendment said that Congress could levy a direct tax on income, but the Supreme Court in Bershaber said they could only do that if they do it as an excise tax, because that's the only way that it could be done without being subject to the rule of apportionment. So they didn't say that a, a direct tax on income uh, was constitutional. The, 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 the Pollock decision, which struck down the income tax, is still valid. In fact, Bershaber said that we have nothing to contradict anything from Pollock. What they're saying is going forward, the 16th Amendment authorized an excise tax on income. And an excise tax, everything is deductible. An excise tax is basically a tax on corporate profits, which is what the Supreme Court has all already ruled. So why don't these states, you know, get a copy of my dad's book, The Great Income Tax Hoax, The Federal Mafia, actually learn something about why the income tax in its current form is being collected and enforced unconstitutionally, and then challenge it. Because, you know, obviously my dad was always dismissed as a kook or all these taxpayers. When they make these arguments, they just say they're frivolous. But if you have states, powerful states, going to the Supreme Court with cogent, constitutionally supported, uh, Supreme Court precedent-supported argument that the entire income tax is unconstitutional, there's a much better chance of that winning, even though I still might say it's small because the court can still ignore the Constitution. But I would say that those arguments hold more constitutional water than the arguments that they're proposing to make as to why the $10,000 limit on the SALT deduction is unconstitutional. (laughs) 